uh, Pierce Sellers. Born in uh, April 1955 in Crowborough, Sussex, he received a Bachelor of Science degree in Ecological Science from the University of Edinburgh in 1976 and a doctorate in Biometeorology from Leeds University in 1981. Before joining the Astronaut Corps, Piers worked on research into how the Earth's biosphere and atmosphere interact. His work involved computer modelling of the climate system, satellite remote sensing studies, and field work using aircraft, satellites, and ground teams based in places such as Kansas, Russia, Africa, Canada, and Brazil. Now, why Kansas rates to the same scale as those great countries, I don't know, but that's what it says. Selected as an astronaut candidate by NASA in April 1996, Piers reported the NASA Johnson Space Center in August uh, of that year. He completed two years of training and evaluation and was initially assigned technical duties in the Astronaut Office Computer Support Branch, followed by service in the Astronaut Office Space Station Branch. During that time, Piers worked part-time in Moscow as a technical liaison on ISS computer software. Since then, Piers has served as a branch chief for the ISS operations branch of the Astronaut Office, amongst his many other duties. But above all, Piers is a veteran of three space flights. The first in SDS-112 Atlantis from the 7th to the 18th of October 2002 was an International Space Station assembly mission, accomplished in 170 orbits, traveling 4.5 million miles in 10 days, 19 hours, and 58 minutes. Now pay attention to these numbers. The next, STS-121 on Discovery, from the 4th to the 17th of July 2006, was a return to flight mission and assembly flight to the ISS, accomplished in 12 days, 18 hours, 37 minutes and 54 seconds. His most recent flight in STS-132 Atlantis, 14th to the 26th of May of this year, was launched from the Space Kennedy Center, Florida, and docked with the ISS to deliver an integrated cargo, cent cargo carrier and a Russian-build mini-research module. The mission was completed in 186 orbits. It traveled 4,879,978 miles in 11 days, 18 hours, 28 minutes, and 2 seconds. <laughs> and that medal went precisely that same distance and time. It is the President's Traveling Medal, and my attempts to emulate that have taken it to the States twice since then, and the air miles in comparison seem rather paltry. <laughs> now, for those paying attention, I'll have worked out that Piers has now logged a total of 34 days, 23 hours, 3 minutes, and 56 seconds in space, including almost 41 hours of EVA hours in six spacewalks. So how is he going to cover all that in the next hour or so? I really don't know. But who better could we have to deliver this 99th Wilbur and all the right lecture entitled Flying in Space. Piers, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, good evening and thanks very much for that very detailed introduction. As, uh, I didn't I wasn't aware of any of those numbers and I, since I slept for at least through twenty five percent of it, you know, it probably doesn't matter. Um, I'm going to be talking about flying in space. Uh, I'm going to be talking about what we've been doing over the last 10, 14 years, how we do it, how we train for it, and also a little bit about what's coming next, because I think uh, all of you are interested to see what NASA and other people will be doing over the next decade, which may or may not be equally exciting.
Uh, that's a picture of me uh, actually yelling at my friend to pass me a wrench, and he decided to uh, take a photo instead. It's actually the best picture of me, since you can't see my face. <laughs> I'm going to be talking about the most recent shuttle mission, which went up in May this year, STS-132, and it's probably the last real assembly flight in the sequence. We took up a large Russian module and put it on station. I'll tell you how we do that because it's pretty typical of all the assembly operations that we've done with shuttle over the years. It's taken roughly 30 flights to assemble the space station piece by piece. So we're coming to the end of a long sequence of events, and we ended up with a complete space station, which should last for at least another 15 years. Uh, six guys were picked for this, and here they are. Uh, you have, starting over there, Mike Good. He was a, a U.S. Air Force colonel and flight test engineer. He worked on B-2 systems, navigation and weapon systems for the stealth bomber. The uh, bald laughing guy is Garrett Reisman, five foot four, known as Big G to his friends and Micro G to his non-friends. Uh, he's a PhD from Caltech, very, very smart guy. Uh, top middle, Tony Antonelli, F-18 strike fighter pilot and also a test pilot. Uh, bottom middle is Hawk Ham, Ken Ham, uh, a guy who actually rung out the problems with the last series of F-18 fighters as a test pilot, but was a strike pilot in the U.S. Navy for most of his career. Uh, middle on the right here is Steve Bowen, unique in the astronaut corps as the only submariner we've ever recruited. How about that? He likes living in long metal tubes and eating preserved food for months. So we thought, perfect fit for the core. And then there's me, climate scientist and clerical error. So managed to get on there. Here's us under more relaxed circumstances. Getting ready. This is how we would really like to see ourselves. And these are actually the last um, Lycra dinner jackets of their kind on the planet. We bought them on eBay from the Philippines, and they're extremely flammable, as we found, <laughs> we found out. So we couldn't take them to space. Okay, and of course, there's the crew, uh, usually pretty visible, which is good or not good, depending. And then a huge team of people, Mission Control and the Johnson at KSC down at Kennedy, where they do the launches, who support the whole business. And these guys are very dedicated I mean, really dedicated. Weekends, Christmas, you name it. They're always working and uh, looking after every aspect of the health of the orbiter. Now, the space shuttle is the most complicated machine ever made. I will state as a provable fact. Three million parts. Three million parts. The chances of three million parts all working at the same time is almost infinitesimal. We're human after all. So... We have a lot of redundancy management systems. That means we have not just one computer to drive the flight control system, but four. And we have another computer on the side that runs a completely set different set of software just in case the first system has a software bug in it that we have not yet discovered. Um, managing systems of this complexity takes a lot of time, effort, education, and dedication. And this is what these guys do day in, day out during missions. And there you can see, actually, the trajectory for launch. This is on launch day, just before we launched. You can see the trajectory. There's the line that goes up and to the, your right, which is the good line. That's where we want to go. And there's a couple of trajectories that show return to launch options. If we lose an engine, we have an option of coming back to Kennedy. 
If that doesn't work out, we have an option of landing somewhere on the East Coast or Canada, or even Fairford, or Ireland, or Africa. And there's another option of going once around the world and coming back to California. So all of this is managed real-time, second by second, by this crew. Training. One of the most difficult things to train for is spacewalking. There's really nothing on Earth like it. You're floating in space, walking with your hands, trying to work, trying to think, while the planet blasts by you at five miles per second, and you're hanging onto the bottom of a huge, shining spaceship, and the sun is moving across the sky, a black sky. It's a very alien environment and tough to train for, believe me. One way we do it is using the neutral buoyancy lab, which you are welcome to. And here's all the guys who support it. And behind it, you can see the shape of a swimming pool. I wish I had a pointer. Okay, well, I'll get up and point. This is the shape of the swimming pool. It's 100 feet this way, 200 foot that way, and 50 foot deep. And inside there is a scale model of about half of the space station, one-to-one scale. The sister ship in the correct configuration of the ship that's actually flying. What you do is we get the retired spacesuits that we've been using on orbit, weight them appropriately, stuff a guy inside, and dump him in the water. And if you weight him just right, he won't sink, he won't float, and he can practice his spacewalks and all the tasks, including getting in and out of airlocks and all the rest of it. And that's how we train for that. Um, Very effective training. I've done six spacewalks, and I have to testify that this was the most useful training of the lot. But almost as good is what these two guys are doing. It's Big G and Mike Good, who are uh, training for their spacewalk on this mission. They're wearing virtual reality goggles. And you can see on their hands they've got gloves that are connected up to cables. What they're seeing is the space station and the Earth going by very realistically and in stereo for, for near objects. Okay, for handrails and things in front of them. They're seeing it in stereo. If they lift their hand up, they see their hand. If they wiggle their fingers, their fingers wiggle. And they turn their hand, and it works. If they grab a handrail, the handrail in their vision flashes to show that they've got a good hand, uh, they've got a good grip on it, and then stops. So you know when you're grabbing things like tools or handrails in this thing. These guys do this kind of interpretive dance while they're training. They can also see their spacewalking buddy. We always do spacewalks in, in teams of two. So you can turn around and see your friend, and he waves his hand, and you can see it wave. It's, it's extraordinary. This has proven to be one of the most valuable tools we have for flying in space, for training, because you can make all the mistakes you want. You can fast forward to a part of a spacewalk and really concentrate on it. It's very, very effective. Launch. Talk a bit about launch, because it's a complicated and dangerous business, and no expense spared. This is actually a very uh, realistic hologram No, actually, this is from the NASA gift shop, but it's pretty good. Um, here's a space shuttle. Weighs about 140 tons on launch. What it has in it is a payload bay where you carry your cargo, a crew compartment at the front where the crew sits. It's pressurized. It has two little engines on the top that you use for orbital maneuvering to give you boost, circulate your orbit, and to fire when you want to come home to knock you out of orbit, and three enormous main engines at the back. So it's about 140 tons, and all the guys are sitting in the front. And of course you sit, just like you sit in an aeroplane, because for landing configuration, you're coming down like this and landing, so sitting like that. But on launch day, 
Of course, you jack it up like that, so you're lying on your back in your seat, all strapped in. These guys are serviced in a hammock, hammer, a hammock, a hangar, called the Orbiter Processing Facility. And when they're ready, we roll them over to the vertical assembly building and put it on its tank using really good Velcro. Because <laughs> NASA invented Velcro. So there it is on its tank. So this is, this is all oxygen at the top, the heavy, slushy stuff, so you want maximum hydraulic head to get it down. Hydrogen at the bottom. And two 17-inch diameter pipes that come out the bottom into the aft compartment of the orbiter and then feed straight into the engines. You don't carry any fuel for these main engines in the orbiter. It's all in this external tank. But loaded, this is too heavy to get off the pad. It would just sit there and thrash away. What you need to get going when it's full of fuel are two solid rocket boosters. And these are basically big firework rockets. And so on the pad, and when you wheel it out from the VAB to the pad, which you'll see in the video, the whole thing looks like this, except for a little firmer and a little bigger. <laughs> so it sits on the pad. And <clears throat> during the countdown, you will get in about uh, two hours before launch, two and a half hours before launch. You're all in there. All the smart people leave the uh, area. They get at least three miles away because this thing weighs about 2.4 thousand, I mean, yeah, 2,400 tons, 2,400 tons. Big, heavy rocket, of which 2,200 tons is fuel, propellant, explosive. So it's a small nuke in terms of uh, the amount of energy here. So everyone retires from the scene about three miles away, and you're sitting there watching the clock. And as you progress towards launch, the shuttle basically sheds all its dependence on external power, data, calculation. It all successfully gets rid of it, starts up its auxiliary power units, goes to internal power. When the computer's happy, it fires the command at exactly the right second when the space station is arcing forward in the orbit, and it wants to go and meet it. It fires the command to start up these engines. They start, they come up to full throttle in a couple of seconds, and the whole assembly twangs this way, because it's held down by the rockets here, by the solid rockets. We call that the twang. It comes over this way. When the computer is satisfied that these engines are performing properly, only then will it give the command to fire the solids. And that's because you can't turn them off. All right, you can turn these engines off, but you can't turn these ones off. So when these light, you are definitely going somewhere. <laughs> and hopefully where you want to go. A split second later, commands separate the explosive bolts, the whole, the whole thing to the Mother Earth. Off you go. And it's like a kick in the backside. You go really fast. This thing does not hang around. It's a lot of thrust. Up you go. You clear the tower. And then the whole thing rolls, pivots, it's an amazing operation. You can see it from the cockpit. Turns around like this to line up with the orbital plane and then flies upside down like this along its trajectory. So the whole thing is shaking and banging away while you're sitting in your seat. It's very exciting, um, particularly since you can't get off during this phase in flight. But after two minutes, there's a huge bang. You can see the flash from the windows and the solids come off. And you'll see that in the video. They separate off and they fall down into the sea to be picked up and reused. You're on your back like this. Now, at this point, you're 25 miles up, 25 miles downrange over the Atlantic, 
and you're going at Mach 5, which is fast. That's after two minutes. After a little while, after that, you roll heads up, and you go on for another six and a half minutes, and eight and a half minutes into flight, engine shut down, and going from 3G, you go instantly from 3G being mashed in your seat and go, to weightlessness, and everything starts flying around the cockpit. And then you separate from the tank, which falls down into the Indian, Indian Ocean, a long way down range. And then you go to space station and to all the other stuff. That's just a nice picture of some thunderstorms on the horizon. It's amazing how thin the atmosphere is from space. The thunderstorms go about a third of the way up the atmosphere that you can see. So one of the surprises to me as a physical scientist was how little atmosphere we have. It's really, you can see just about all of it above the clouds. This is what Space Station looked like in 2006, which was the second time I went there. It was pretty small, about 100 and something tons with one solar array, one US solar array, the big thing on the top. We actually moved that later on. But this spring, this is what it looked like. And it's pretty much its finished form. It's about 500 tons. Crew of six. And it's about 350 feet from one end of the truss to the other. And these modules are, uh, you know, wide body jet diameter. So this is a really big uh, habitation in space, if you like. And by the way, on the front of one of these trusses, on the front of the truss, there's a little railway line that has a bogey that moves up and down it, and that's used to transport the crane so it can access any part of station. Great stuff. And here's the, uh, here's the shuttle coming up to meet it, flying over Scotland, as it is now. No, not really. It's <laughs> flying over the Himalayas. That's a view from station. And this is the station crew who were very happy to see us because we brought fresh food. And then they said, hello, nice to meet you. Thunderstorm from space. Um, at night, you can see these things. They light, they fire each other off. You see one thunderstorm uh, giving a lightning strike, and then you'll see a pattern of them going on for hundreds of miles, sometimes a thousand miles. It's really spectacular. Okay, working in space. The shuttle comes up, opens its payload bay doors, and then we start taking stuff out of the shuttle and putting it on station. One of the easiest ways to do that is to have the 65-foot robot arm, and you can see the end of it there, with a little footplate on the end, stick one of the astronauts in it, you hold on by your tow loops, reach down the payload bay, grab whatever it is you want. In this case, it's a, uh, not a beach umbrella, it's a communication antenna. Then flip it over to the right part of the station and bolt it on. And here's Garrett upside down, still holding his antenna. You can see the whole length of the arm there. It's a seven degree of freedom double jointed arm. And taking it over to Steve, who's hanging onto a, a, the boom, like a telephone pole where they're going to mount it, put it on and bolt it in place. Simple as that. And here's the two guys. You can see the back of Steve's back and Michael Good standing in a platform here. And what they're doing is changing out the batteries on the space station. We have these big solar arrays on the space station, but they only gather power on the sunlit part of the orbit. They charge up these huge batteries on the space station, on the trusses, and you use those on the dark side so you get an average power that's about what you want. These batteries are about 400 pounds each. And here you can see Steve holding one just with one hand while he's waiting for a space to appear so he can plug it in. So we swapped out six batteries as part of the, part of the mission. 
this is a picture that Garrett took. It's a self-portrait. And if you look at it, you can see this is his visor. You're looking at his visor, and he pointed the camera at himself like this. So you can see the camera in his two hands there. Reflected in his station is everything that he's looking at. You can see the space station. You can see the shuttle over here. This is the nose of the shuttle, docked to the space station. And then the curve of the Earth over there. So it's a tremendous view. And it's all moving and flashing by you at uh, five miles a second. And that's a view of Atlantis while Garrett was standing on the end of the arm just looking around. So he could actually see what the rest of us were doing. Uh, dust storms over the Sahara. Huge amount of dust blowing off the deserts over the Atlantic. A lot of it ends up in Brazil, where it actually helps the nutrient balance of the uh, rainforest, believe it or not. Aurora Borealis. On the night side, you can see this for hundreds of miles. It's all moving, and it's all below you. It's pretty interesting. It's a different perspective. The uh, oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico kind of coincided while we were there. You can see the streaks of the heavier loads of oil going in a kind of bath plug drain pattern there. And this is um, about 100 to 200 miles across. It's quite a big deal. Very visible. And thunderstorms. Um, this is near the equator. You can see the thunderstorms punching up into the uh, stratosphere. Yes, self-portrait. See yourselves. Going from Penzance to Dover, avoiding the M25. You do this in less than a couple of minutes. You go very, very fast. Okay, the last thing we did, or actually the last thing I'm going to talk about in this sequence, is uh, some business we had with the Russians. We owed them um, a chit to fly their module, their new module called Rasvet, or Daybreak, which we went to visit in Moscow and saw it being put together. And here it is. You can see it's about the size of a school bus, and um, it weighed about eight tons. So we went to see all the guys who were working on it, including one guy who appeared to be living in it. And then uh, they put it in the world's biggest aeroplane and flew it from Moscow over to Kennedy Space Center in Florida and landed on the runway we used to land the shuttle, which is just as well because it's a big plane. Here is the uh, uh, Russian team ecstatic at the safe delivery <laughs> of, the, of their module. And here it is at Kennedy Space Center, and the crew, the blue suiters you can see there, are looking at it, and the flight directors um, getting our first look in the U.S. just before it got loaded on the shuttle. So we loaded it, and then it was time to move it. And we have this new thing on the station called the cupola. And it's basically a, a glass, a little glass bubble, six windows around and one glass window on top, hanging on the underside of the station like a belly turret. And you, you stick your head in there, you can see all around you. It's just wonderful view of station. And that's where you operate the robotic arm from. So it's a bit like being a tower crane operator at a building site. You can see everything. You have all your controls. You can see the guys working out there. You can even see down into the payload bay of the shuttle. And here's me and Garrett sitting in there, by the way. The world is bright and we're rather dark, but never mind. But you can see the shuttle through the windows back there. And you can actually look through the window into the payload bay, and this is the crane operator's view, my view, of the module, the Russian modules, is sitting in there. Now, how to get it out of there and stick it on space station? We use the same technique for just about all the modules. You use the shuttle arm, which is, lies down one sill of the shuttle payload bay, to pull it out, 
and present it sticking up above the shuttle, and then you grab it with a big station arm, release the shuttle arm, and swing it over and plug it in wherever you want to go. Sounds easy. So I'll show you how it's done. There you are, lift it up, grab it with a big arm, swing it around, plug it in, make sure it's connected, and present the Russians with a bill. And there it is, just about to go in. It was wonderful. You could see it just moving over our, over our heads as we were doing the maneuver. And here it is securely in place as we undocked. And uh, full of food. And they're still eating it, apparently. Eating their way through it. I don't think they've got to the far wall yet. <laughs> so after a hard day, you try and sleep. Sleeping space is tricky because it feels like you're floating all the time. So you watch people falling asleep and they tend to do this. They go like this. And they go... There's a panic uh, reaction as they're falling asleep and they think they're falling. So the trick is to use straps to lash yourself to a bulkhead. You feel pressure on your body and that will trick you that you're safe in bed at home and you're not falling and eventually you'll fall to sleep. After a while, it's time to come home. So the shuttle orbits around by itself and then looking at taking all the sights, you get a really good views of places you'd like to go on vacation, like the Bahamas in this case. And then it's time to come home. And the way this works is you fire these little engines on top of your flaccid shuttle. And you do this uh, burn somewhere over the Indian Ocean. It knocks you out of orbit. Just so you're grazing the atmosphere, you fire this way, and then you flip over because you're going this way. That's Kennedy over there. You're like this. You fire, flip over, and now you're ready to re-enter with a black paint tiles pointing into the wind. 40 degree angle of attack, use the atmosphere as a break. And it gets to a couple of thousand degrees outside, and you'll see in the video through the windows how it, the air glows cherry red with a plasma around the, around the shuttle. So over the Pacific, you're doing these S-turns to bleed off speed and energy. And then if everything works out right, you end up right over um, Kennedy Space Center at about Mark 2.5, terminal guidance. And then at Mark 1, the commander takes over and lands it. And it works great, fortunately. You land at about 250 miles an hour, 210 knots or so, on a three-mile runway at Kennedy, and roughly three miles away from where you took off. It's all very convenient. And you just wheel it back into the garage and service it again. When you get out, you all hold each other up because you don't want to fall over, because <laughs> your internal ear organs, your balance organs, have been completely confused by the whole business of space flight and it feels like the ground, ground is moving around. And if you're lucky, your two flight directors in the background come down to see you land, which is, which is really nice. We work with these people for months. They're terrific people. All the uh, mission patches you saw flashing up there were the 32 missions that Atlantis has done successfully. She may have one more in her next year. But in any case, in 2011, the shuttle fleet will be retired. Uh, sort of 30 to 35 flights per three surviving shuttles. And there'll be a fight among the museums uh, about who gets them. NASA built five shuttles. We lost two, three left to be retired next year. So was it all worthwhile? I think it was. We got a space station out of it, which will last for another 15 years, as I said. Six-person crew there, and hopefully some really good science and technology to come out of it. And I'm ready for questions, I guess, at that point.
Well, thank you, Piers. Uh, anybody wants to ask a question, hands up. A mic will come to you. If you just announce who you are and, and, and ask your question. But can I have the first one? And that is science. I mean, that, that behavior is typical of builders the world over. You've been up to build a space station, you behave like builders. How much science was there done on those missions? <laughs> and, and what happens now you can't do it other than on the space station? Is science going to be, be lost whilst we have a pause in the program? Before something else takes over. Actually, I think that we're going to do more science than ever. For a long time, there were two things going on. One, we had a space station being assembled, yep. so we we're putting our lab together. And science took second place to that. A lot of problems en route, and, you know, including the loss of a shuttle and, uh, and uh, reduction to a two-person crew. But for pretty much um, right until quite recently, we had a three-person crew on station. And all the man hours were busy uh, getting ready for the next assembly mission and maintaining systems. Now we have six people, and roughly 50% uh, of the time will be dedicated to science from now on, and all the, all the packages, the payloads are beginning to arise. So I'm thinking that the next decade or so, you'll really see some, some home runs, I hope, or sixes. Questions? Yeah. First one there, then. Uh, Nick Spall, Piers, uh, fantastic talk. Thank you very much. That was absolutely terrific. Um, but firstly, can I congratulate you on getting the British Interplanetary Silver Pin Award to put well, alongside you your, so your NASA uh, silver and your NASA gold uh, pins as one of only five uh, UK-born astronauts ever out of 500 that have been into space. I think you were the third to go of, of uh, after Helen Sharman and Mike Foley. You were number three, probably the first ecologist, possibly, to, uh, to go into orbit. Maybe which the it, last, which is, yeah. <laughs> I hope not. But uh, moving on to the question, congratulations. On to the question, um, the, you've helped build this terrific uh, flying laboratory. How can uh, the UK access this, uh, this fantastic uh, uh, machine and, and laboratory? Is there any way that the UK government, along with others who haven't formally participated, um, somehow contribute to the science that's going to be happening in the next 15 years? And secondly, linked to that question, how can this be helped to uh, push forward our own uh, astronaut, the Easter astronaut who's training, Tim Peake, uh, bring him perhaps um, further to, to the, the, the front of the pecking order of the new six who are, are going to be flying uh, for Easter in the next 10 years? Well, quite a lot of the answer is above my pay grade. Um, but uh, I think now that we have an established space station, and we have a British astronaut in the European Space Agency, a real British astronaut, if you like, you know, with a Union Jack on his, on his shoulder patch. I'm hoping that the um, interest and excitement in government will increase, and we have a spanking new space agency here to help things along. So I think it'll take the support and interaction of many groups here to keep things moving, but I'm, but I'm pretty confident that eventually the UK will be participating in space station, and hopefully in what a, whatever exploration comes next. So I'm optimistic. How will the space station be supplied, maintained, serviced when the shuttle finishes? Good question. Um, right now we're reliant on the Russians' Soyuz rocket and Soyuz capsules to get crews up and back. And uh, all our space station crews go up by Soyuz and they park their Soyuz is there and they're their lifeboats, if you like. They're their escape pods if they get into trouble. And they also come back six months afterwards on the same capsules. So getting up there and back, we're going to be reliant on the Russians in at least the near to midterm. 
Supply, we've got three, three routes right now, and possibly four. We have Russian progress, robot ship that goes up and takes supplies. The European ATV, which is pretty big, takes eight tons at a time. They just had one successful, its first successful flight recently, and they're going to launch another one soon. And the Japanese also had their first successful flight of HTV, which is a really big module. Very exciting that it comes up underneath space station, hovers, and you reach out with the arm and grab it and plug it into space station, just snatch it out of the, the vacuum, I guess. So we've got three systems, and just the other day, Dragon, the first commercial launch system, launched, did two orbits, and landed in the ocean successfully. So we're okay for supply. It would be nice to have a U.S. national system that provides us access to the station as well, but that could be a couple of years, well, three or four years yet. But no problem. The station will keep operating. Uh, Michael Thorpe, I'm the master of the Guild of Air Pilots and Air Navigators. So I'm asking a really pretty simple question. How much manual flying is done on the mission that we've just seen? Obviously, you told us the landing was done. Uh, what else is actually done manually? Uh, during launch, nothing. And you want to keep it that way uh, because uh, control of all the systems requires sort of millisecond level response, you know, the order of 10 milliseconds. So you don't want to lose control just for a, se for, for a second. There is a provision if um, control is lost but guidance is good for the commander to take over manually in second stage and do the, the, the last two-thirds of the launch manually. But it's never been done. Don't want to do it. The docking and approach is all done manually. All those burns are set up manually. The docking is done manually. And uh, that's a, a well-time-honored routine, and we do that all the time. There is no provision for an automatic docking with shuttle. Uh, entry... You set up the burns, the crew sets up the burns and tells the computer what to do, but you don't actually take over the stick to land until you get to Mach 1. Though in previous test, shuttle test flights, people have taken and flown almost a complete manual entry all the way across the Pacific, right down to touchdown. But no auto land. So it's kind of an interesting mixture. As John Young says, we let the uh, computers do the things that computers are good at, which is launch, and humans do the things that humans are good at, which is docking and landing. Hi, um, you've given a 15-year life on the, um, the ISS, and I was just wondering what's next after the 15 years. 15 years, yes, that's right. Uh, my entire class, the sardines, has basically lived and breathed ISS from, we were recruited before it was launched, and we worked to assemble it and, and crew it up. So our entire class has basically dedicated, you know, a big chunk of their careers to making this happen. Um, some of the class are going to stay in NASA, uh, helping out with the next program and supervising station. Some are moving off to do other things. And I'm personally, uh, I'm going to hang it up and go back to climate science, which is where I came from, in another part of NASA. I'm looking forward to that. We've got a new, brand new class of young people who are much more nimble and flexible in the knees to go and do the next phase. <laughs> Uh, Claire Walker, uh, Women in Aviation and Aerospace. I was very um, privileged once to meet Eileen Collins mm -hmm. um, in, in America, and she said the three things that most struck her uh, looking down on Earth was, uh, as you pointed out, the, the thunderstorms, but also the number of forest fires and also the level of deforestation, uh, which was clearly visible from space. I wondered what you, as an ecologist, what struck you most? I'd say deforestation in the United Kingdom has been very effective. 
and it took about you know eight thousand years to do it. But um, the the things that really really struck me, uh, and it's, it's I think this hits most people is you can look down from you know your perch on orbit and you can see individual fields, you can see the bridges over the Thames you know, on a clear day, you can see ship tracks, you, so you can see lots of things, you can even see city blocks. So you can see things that are on a human scale, you can identify with what you're seeing. But at the same time, you go right around the planet in a hundred minutes. So it becomes, you know, it sinks in that the world is really quite a small place. We're all stuck on the outside of this little sphere. It's very small. The other thing as a scientist that really struck me is how thin the atmosphere is. There's, it's just an onion skin around this rock. There's very little of it. Everything looks flat. The clouds look flat. The pollution looks flat. So uh, it was good. As a scientist, I got a lot out of it. And as a person, I probably even more. Piers, Peter Norris, uh, f- former president of the society. Two quick questions, if I may. Uh, the first one, when you talked about the training, um, one seems to remember in the past seeing... A sort of 747 type aircraft uh, flying a parabolic profile to right. create that. Does that not happen now? That was the first question. Uh, and the second one relates to the science and some of the experiments that you or others might have been involved in. Could you just illustrate one or two that are carried out there simply because they can't be done down here on Earth? Or just just talk a little bit about that? Thank sure. You. Um, first of all, the, the vomit comet, as we used to call the thing that does this and you get about 20 seconds of weightlessness. We don't use that to train astronauts. They, they all get a, a free ride and a fan when they show up. One flight and that's it. That's all you get. We use it really for testing engineering to see if systems we've developed really will work in a zero-G environment and uh, also to see how people get seasick. That's what I like to tell. But we have, we got rid of our uh, KC-135 we now work with a commercial company called Zero-G to satisfy that need, and that has pluses and minuses, which I won't go into, or I'll get in trouble. Um, what was the other question? Science. Two illustrations. We're going to be taking up an alpha magnetic spectrometer, which is going to be looking at uh, high-energy cosmic radiation. And this is a huge instrument. This is the size of a small uh, van, if you like. It's going up in shuttle. And we're going to put it on station, and the reason that... Station's the only place that could support that is because of the power developed by the huge solar arrays that we've got. So we should be learning a lot more about the, the radiation field uh, in space, something that's never been done before. On the biosciences, we take, um, we've got a whole range of experiments done in orbit. One I found interesting that we did on our mission is we take a range of um, bugs up. We find that they mutate far more virulently on orbit because of the strange environment that they do on Earth. And as a result of that, we get better vaccines out of it. And that's actually gone onto a commercial application. Um, mixing molten metals, uh, making particular kind of spherical structures in zero-G has been tried with some success because you can make metals form perfect spheres. They don't settle out due to gravity, and you can get interesting coatings and things like that. So there's a kind of range of tech development and science. And to be honest, I think the tech development will probably win out in the long run. I think we're going to see some new technologies coming out of this. Uh, hi, uh, Tim Robinson, uh, Publications Department. Uh, thanks, Piers, for an excellent lecture and also the, uh, the, the great NASA rock film there. Rock video. Uh, uh, um, 
quick question. We had a, 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 an exciting discovery by NASA uh, recently of arsenic-based life forms or, arsenic, or, or life forms that have got uh, 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 arsenic in their DNA. How far do you think we might have to go to find life on other worlds? And, and you know, where might we look for it in the, in the solar system? What are your thoughts on that? I hadn't heard about the non-edible life form. Uh, or, uh, the arsenic, so I need to, need to read up about that. Um, how far do we have to go? Mars, two billion years ago, had a perfectly good ocean, equivalent to 500 meters deep over the whole planet, and a warm atmosphere, and um, pretty nice climate. So it's possible, while the Earth was still settling down, that there may have been early life on Mars back then. I'm convinced there isn't any there now, because it's almost a hard vacuum, and you know, uh, conditions on the surface are pretty harsh. But there may have been life there at one time, and it behooves us to go and look, I think. Um, there may be other life forms that work in, that use liquid methane as a solvent rather than water. That's a little bit more out there. The exobiologists get very interested in that. And there are environments elsewhere in the solar system, like Titan, that has uh, conditions like that. But um, let's say we don't find anything in the solar system. We're working on telescopes that should be able to resolve planets around other stars over the next 20 years. And if you do that, and you do spectroscopy of those planets, you should be able to see if they've got reactive chemicals in their atmosphere like oxygen or methane, which can only be produced in kind of lasting quantities if there's some biogenic reactions going on. So we may detect life indirectly around other planets sometime in the future. Here's Mike Steeden, uh, past president. Uh, Great talk, great video. Thanks ever so much for looking after the President's Medal. Much appreciated. Um, space Station's pretty big. Um, I'm told there's quite a lot of space debris up there these days. What kind of problem does that present space, for the Space Station? Space debris. Datery. Debris. debris. Bits of rubbish debris. floating oh, around in the debris. atmosphere. Debris. 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 <laughs> Uh, by the way, the video was made by an intern who works in the bowels of Building 8 in JSC, and he just said, I want to do this, leave me alone, this Is kid. Um, Muse came and visited us while we were training, and uh, they said, we'll donate the uh, rights to the music if, you know, because we're interested. So for a cup of coffee and an intern, we got a pretty good rock video out of it. So, uh, you know, we did not spend a lot of money on it. Okay, well, um, back to the rubbish in space. The, the debris, the debris. Uh, the debris is a real problem. And getting worse all the time, actually. Uh, Colorado uh, space tracking um, keeps track of all the debris that's bigger than about this this much. And uh, any of these objects this size and bigger, if they hit space station, would pretty much you know annihilate it because the crossing speeds are about you know a kilometer a second or more. So that would be very bad news. So when we see one of those coming up. Uh, we do a debris avoidance maneuver. We actually jink the whole station out of the way. And we keep doing this. And if we can't get out of the way in time, um, the crew shelters in place in a Soyuz until the object has gone by and missed, hopefully. But we've done this a few times. The thinking being that if a station does get hit, you just undock with a Soyuz and go home. Which leaves all the smaller stuff. The really small stuff we can keep out with armored panels. Uh, we have some ceramic body armor, if you like, that's around the living modules on station. And that has done a pretty good job at keeping out 
little grain-sized pieces of debris. But when I've been spacewalking, I've seen bullet holes over the older parts of station where you've got some impacts. And that's a real hazard to spacewalking. Uh, one of the risks in spacewalking is actually getting a BB go clean through you. And um, so that's why I always have my fat spacewalking partner in front of me. I'm just going to have him jink around. But <clears throat> there's this intermediate range of ob objects that could hurt you badly and you can't see. And you're sort of relying on statistics, the very rare event that one of these things could hit you in station. If that were to happen, you would sort of treat it like a submarine uh, springing a leak. We have many, many hatches between modules. You try and isolate the leak and then figure out what to do next. And it would be like a submarine. You would lose a, you would lose a module or a compartment if, that, if you get a penetration. Hi, Piers. Uh, thanks for that. Um, I'm a student of electronic engineering from Warwick University. Um, got a lot of questions to pepper you with, uh, but uh, I'll just keep it to three for now. Um, <laughs> you, you're fine, you, even without the armor. But um, with respect to, I mean, the shuttle's coming to an end, and the kind of uh, access methods we've got to Leo is changing as well. And do you see that impacting on the kind of training for future astronauts? and the kind of skill sets that they'd be required to do, the kind of science that they'd be required to do. Um, that's one. What, uh, secondly, what did you have that got, that played in your favor when you actually applied to the program? And any advice for successors or things like that? And, well, um, that's two, two, okay. okay. Yeah, and then uh, thirdly, uh, with, with this... It's a manifesto. This is a <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if I can catch you outside, there's a lot more, but if you want to... Um, but yeah, and also in terms of the science that you do, uh, I mean, a lot of your training is for the actual rigors of flying. Uh, how do you feel that you contribute in that you as the, the work that you actually do there? Do you feel that you contribute equ in equal measure, or you share your own ideas with the people who actually develop the experiments from the ground, get them flown there? One, the training. Uh, the training will change. We've quit shuttle training except for the last couple of crews. Shuttle training was a huge part of NASA over the last, you know, three decades. So that's a, a big piece that's gone. So our people will be doing robotics training, EVA training, and uh, station systems. Everything, that's a lot to learn, by the way. <coughs> station is pretty complicated. Uh, Russian Soyuz training and Russian language. And that will keep you all busy. That and flying the T-38s will fill up your week. So these, uh, the, the, the new class is going to be kept very busy, basically working ISS. I would expect the same skill mix that we have in the office to be maintained more or less into the future. We have, you, you can't be an astronaut without being something else first. And, and your record's got to be reasonably unblemished. Um, you can be a test pilot, a scientist, an engineer, or a medical doctor. Those are the four fields that we select from. And I don't see that changing because I think we need all those skills in any vehicle operations and any activities in space in the future. Last thing, point C, was the science. Uh, how much do you interact with the principal investigators? It varies a lot. Sometimes you get the opportunity to work with them at an early stage in experiment and, and help out. Quite often, though, you end up just as the operator and you try and work with the team enough so that you do not mess up 
this guy's experiment. And um, full of pitfalls. And I, I, that's really where I've concentrated. Most crew people concentrate their efforts. Their efforts. Do the experiment correctly. Don't mess it up. Don't be too creative. In the future, maybe it'll change. But right now, when you know you only have a few minutes to get something done, you, you've really got to be on top of completing the experiment as written. Okay, can I draw the questions to a close there, Piers? I think, you know, otherwise you might be here all night. Um, and can I ask Pat Norris, uh, who's chairman of our space group, uh, to propose a vote of thanks? Mr. Chairman, Piers, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I think you will agree with me that we've been privileged to hear a presentation by a true master this evening. I feel that uh, one of the tests of a, whether a person is, is truly master of their subject is that they make it seem simple. And Pierce made it all seem so simple, so almost casual. And yet we know that this is the most sophisticated engineering endeavor uh, uh, in the world. Uh, and he has made it uh, so clear and so simple and so exciting. Perhaps we expected a, a space spectacular tonight. I, I certainly did. And, and we have not been disappointed. But I must, I was uh, particularly pleased though that I also learned how the, how Mother Nature is replenishing the nutrient balance of the Amazon rainforest with uh, by blowing sand from the Sahara. This this was a bonus. Uh, I I have to say, I I must admit I was not convinced that spaceflight is a viable alternative to the M25. I, I'm sorry I, I I didn't buy that one. But uh, uh, what it struck me was how how impressive how impressive young people will find the kind of experiences that that Pierce has described. Um, I was struck by the, uh, at the, at the rather superficial level, which, uh, is all I can deal with, um, spending five weeks in space. Uh, and this is, this is what Pierce has done. But what Mr. Cool himself has done, which struck me as even better, is he has slept for more than a week in space, a quarter of the time. This, is that cool or is it not? Uh, and, and then, not to Mach 5 in two minutes, Jeremy Clarkson, eat your heart out. I mean, this is really moving fast. Uh, what, what a wonderful career and how, how privileged we, we are all to have been uh, given such a scintillating uh, exposition on the subject tonight. Thank you very much, Pierce. Thank you.